Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles, and we will eventually begin with Psalm 115 today. So you can go ahead and turn to Psalm number 115. Well, what is this book you hold in your hands, or that you have in your lap, or that you have next to you? What is this book? Where did it come from? How do you define it? How do you describe it to people? These are important questions, aren't they? As a church, we've staked a lot on this book. <laughs> we, have, we have put a lot of confidence in this book, and we want to talk about for the next few weeks why we have confidence in this book. Now, there are many people out there who, when trying to convince someone else of the importance of Scripture, they'll say something like, let me present the evidence to you and you be the judge. Not here. Not today. We don't speak that way about Scripture. But we speak of Scripture as it speaks of itself, that this is the very Word of God. Apart from how you judge it, it has all authority. Apart from how you judge it, it will, it can, and it will judge the thoughts and intentions of your own heart. And so we call people to submit to this Word. We call people to hear the voice of God in His revelation and to submit. And this brings us to a very important conversation that we have to have before we, before we get into looking at what the Word of God says of itself. I want to talk to you momentarily about presuppositions or axioms that we have. Everybody in life works on assumptions. There are some people out there, when you get into conversations like this, they try to act like they, they don't work on assumptions. I'm the perfectly neutral one in life. And I fairly, neutrally examine all things. No. Those, those people exist just as much as unicorns exist. Okay, They're not real. We all have presuppositions. We all have starting points. We all have ultimate standards by which we judge the world, by which we interpret reality around us. And I will let you know that at this church, we unapologetically disagree with modern thought on this point. Modern thought says, you're the judge. Modern thought says, your senses and reasoning are the ultimate standard of truth. What you determine to be true is true. And today we have this version of, it's true for you. And what's true for you may not be true for me or, or someone else. That is not our starting point here. That's not the starting point the Bible gives us. That's not the starting point you should have. Our starting points are these. There is a God, and He is there. The triune God exists. Jesus Christ is Lord. The Bible is the Word of God. The Word of God is God's authoritative revelation. We start there. And our senses and reasoning must be found in submission to those realities. We don't make God Lord. We don't exalt Jesus as Lord and then that makes Him Lord. We don't say the Word of God has authority and then that gives it authority. Apart from what we think or say or do, the triune God is there. Jesus Christ is Lord. Scripture is the authoritative Word of God. Whether you make it your truth or not, it is truth. It doesn't need your affirmation. These are realities that exist. Scripture tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Everybody walking the face of the earth can look at the heavens and understand there is a Creator. Explain to me how we got here without a Creator. There are many explanations out there. But none of them can give justice to this amazing reality that we're floating on a ball in space. <laughs> Scripture tells us too that all consciences reveal that they know God. This is an amazing thing. Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. God has made His presence known to everybody. Without exception. He has made His presence known to everybody. 
And Romans 2 talks about even their consciences revealed this. Even outside of Judaism, for thousands of years, when God had His people, His nation, the Jews, even outside of them, there were people that were making laws about what is right and what is wrong because their consciences even testify to this reality of God, the ultimate judge who declares what is right and what is wrong. And so, consequently, when the Bible talks about atheism, when the Bible talks about agnosticism, it's not a matter of what do you know. It's a matter of folly. It says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It doesn't say the one who doesn't have enough knowledge yet says in his heart, there is no God. That's not how Scripture presents this issue. Everyone knows God exists. It's a matter of morality, not a matter of knowledge. John Frame, I'm going to quote him a couple times here at the beginning. John Frame has said this, God has revealed Himself to each person with unmistakable clarity, both in creation and in man's own nature. In one sense, the unbeliever knows God. But in spite of that knowledge, the unbeliever intentionally distorts the truth, exchanging it for a lie. This is Romans 1. Thus, the non-Christian is deceived and led astray. He knows God and does not know Him at the same time. <laughs> it's an amazing, but also terrifying existence. They know God, and yet they did not see fit to worship Him as God. Romans 1. But they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiping creatures rather than the Creator. The God of the Bible is there. The triune God is there. And Jesus Christ is Lord. He is revealed through both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, of course, looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, the ultimate revelation of God, God incarnate, God with us. And the New Testament is an explanation of Jesus Christ. What is the New Testament but an account of the person and work of Jesus Christ? Again, this is John Frame. So good. This is so good. If you can get this, we're, we're going to make a lot of ground here at the beginning. John Frame says, we trust Jesus Christ as a matter of eternal life or death. We trust His wisdom beyond all other wisdom. We trust His promises above all others. He calls us to give Him all our loyalty and not allow any other loyalty to compete with Him. We obey His law even when it conflicts with lesser laws. You see that in the lives of the disciples, don't you? Get this. Since we believe Him more certainly than we believe anything else, He, and hence His Word, is the very criterion, the ultimate standard of truth. What higher standard could there possibly be? Amen to that? What standard is more authoritative? What standard is more clearly known to us? What authority ultimately validates all other authorities? And we say, Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate authority. He's the ultimate standard. There can never be a higher standard than your Creator God. And so we start with Him. We don't start by judging Him or His Word. We start in a position of submission as His creatures and say, speak, Lord. You are the authority, not me. We take God at His Word. We do not prove His Word to meet our standards. We don't come up with certain marks or standards that God must meet before we believe Him. You with me on this? We don't have this position before God to say, you do this and then I'll believe you. You do this and then I'll trust you. You don't have that. You are a creature made in God's image and He has spoken. And He's spoken to you personally and He's spoken to you in love. And you say, speak, Lord. Fountains of living water. Give me life. His Word is our life. We don't call out to Him and say, prove it. How dare we ever think that way? Let me tell you just a little bit about young Jeremy. When I was a new believer and I was studying Christianity, I didn't come from a Christian home, so it was all new. Almost all brand new, but I'm just I'm gobbling it up. I'm learning. 
And I got really into apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Really into this idea of open discussions with atheists or Muslims or whoever it may be about what truth is. And you'll know if if you endeavor in this adventure, (laughs) you know that pretty soon, once you start down that road, you're going to get this question back at you. Why do you trust the Bible? Why do you believe the Bible? And there are lots of ways to answer that question. Now, I've given you some answers already here this morning. But there are lots of ways that you can start to answer that question. And as I went through different iterations of what I liked to say in response to that question, what I eventually landed on was, because it's true. (laughs) Why do you trust the Bible? Why do you believe the Bible? Because it's true. Where else could I go to get ultimate truth? And there are people who will fire back and say, well, you can't do that. You can't just say it's true. And that's the end of the conversation. Really? Really? What's your starting point, non-believer? Well, I judge things. I examine and I make the call. Who put you in that place? Who are you to answer back to God? How do you know your senses and your reasoning are reliable? More true than the Bible. That sounds like a presupposition. That sounds like an assumption. That sounds like circular reasoning. How do you know your senses and reasoning are are good and accurate and reliable? Well, because my senses and reasoning eventually prove themselves to be reliable. Well, that's convenient. That's awfully convenient. You little G-God who wants to have the ultimate seed of the universe. We trust the Bible because the Bible is true. The Bible is the Word of God. And Scripture itself contains a doctrine of Scripture. As we open up the Bible, as we examine what it has to say about itself, it has a lot to say about itself. And so where are we going to get our doctrine of Scripture? Somewhere outside of Scripture? No. We open it up and we say, speak, Lord. We get our doctrine of Scripture from Scripture itself. Let me read you this quote from Edward Young. This is really good. Again, if you can get this, we're making a lot of ground. Edward Young says this, It is perfectly true that if we begin with the assumption that God exists and that the Bible is His Word, we shall wish to be guided in all our study by what the Scripture says. It is equally true that if we reject this foundational presupposition of Christianity, we shall arrive at results which are hostile to supernatural Christianity. If one begins with the presuppositions of unbelief, he will end with unbelief's conclusions. If one begins with man, he will end with man. All who study the Bible must be influenced by their foundational presuppositions. If we begin, this is going back to the beginning of the quote, it is perfectly true that if we begin with the assumption that God exists and that the Bible is His Word, we shall wish to be guided in all our study by what the Scripture says. And that's where we are. We start with there is a God and He has spoken and we want to hear from Him about what Scripture is. We start with that ultimate commitment. Because if you come to the Bible with the ultimate commitment that you are the authority, where are you going to end up? You're still going to be the authority. You're still going to be the authority at the end of that discussion. You have to start, not not start standing up over the Bible and then somehow you're going to end up on your knees in submission to the Bible. No, you start on your knees in submission to the Bible. We hear God's voice in Scripture, and He speaks with great authority. We are not verifying Scripture through some external worldview, but we are understanding Scripture within its own teachings. So with all that said, let me give you a big idea. God is authoritative and personal. So personal that He's communicated to us. And that's where I want to go in Psalm 115. I want us to see this first. Psalm 115. We're going to look at the first eight verses of Psalm 115 contrasting the God who is with idols. Contrasting the one true God with false gods. Psalm 115, starting in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory. Glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. 
Why should the nation say, where now is their God? Hey, where is our God, by the way? Well, what's he up to? Memorize verse three. Look down here. Verse three. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Verse four. Let's contrast this God with false gods. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And here is a scary verse. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Our God is authoritative and communicative and personal, unlike every other so-called God. Our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. And how amazing, how astounding, how awesome is this? It pleases Him to talk to us. It pleases Him to reveal Himself to us. And so we should thirst for the Word of God, the One who made us. God is real. And He and His Word transcend the scientific method. God and His Word transcend empirical evidence. Now, there's a lot of evidence for God's Word, and we can talk about that in the third sermon of this series. Okay, we'll get there. But know this. God and His Word transcend any type of methodology that we've come up with to prove if things are true or false. Think of when God called Noah. He said, hey, it's going to rain. Build a boat. Did Noah answer back to God and say, well, that sounds a bit different. I'm going to need to see the meteorology report on this. Give me a science textbook and explain to me how this could work before I, I trust in you. No. God's word transcends the scientific method transcends empirical evidence. God said, this is what's going to happen. This is what you are to do. Moses, or Noah rather, was to either believe or to rebel. How about Abram? God says, get up and go. Get up and go. But God, prove to me. Show me. I'm the judge after all. Present your evidence and I will make my verdict. No. No, no, no. God spoke. Abram had a choice. Believe or rebel. John the Baptist, a voice crying in the wilderness. He was led by God to declare, He's coming, the Messiah's coming. Really, John? We've been waiting thousands of years. Are you serious? We've been waiting for the seed of the woman. We've been waiting for the great prophet. Really? John had a choice to believe or rebel. The people hearing the prophet believe or rebel. God's word cuts past all that evidence we demand. Cuts past any standard that we think he should meet. And God's word is powerful, isn't it? The first chapter of the Bible, the first act of God we read about in the Bible, he's speaking. God said, let there be light light. With a word, He creates. God's word is powerful. Think of Jesus in the garden with the guards standing there. All Jesus had to say was, I am. Guards, whoop, down on the ground. You can't do that with your word, but God can do that with His word. Those of us who are Christians who have experienced forgiveness of sins, God's word has pardoned us once for all and says, you're forgiven. How powerful is that? Once for all, you're forgiven. You are a child of God. God's Word is powerful. And it's with these ultimate commitments that we consider the Bible. We are looking at the Bible, but never without the Bible. We depend on the Bible to understand the Bible. And so we look into it together. And we're about to look at many, many passages. You can try to flip with me or look up, use your phone, whatever. I suggest probably just writing a lot of them down, okay? But I want to give you a big overarching picture of revelation and inspiration. There are two ways of considering God's revelation to us 
typically called general revelation and special revelation. General revelation goes back to what I quoted earlier from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's all men everywhere. Romans chapter 1. God has revealed Himself. He's made Himself evident within all people. Generally. That's general revelation. Special revelation is God explaining in detail who He is and what we are called to do in His Word. And so we're going to be talking about special revelation. It's how we know God personally. And God had processes of revelation in both Testaments. He had a process in the Old Testament. He had a process in the New Testament in revealing Himself. When we consider the Old Testament, Israel's role was to receive and to preserve the oracles of God. They were both to receive and to preserve the oracles of God. Consider Acts 7, verse 38. This is and uh, Peter speaking of Moses, Acts chapter 7, or sorry, not Peter, Stephen. He said, This is the one, Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers. What was Moses' role? Here it is. He received living oracles to pass on to you. So Moses, as we consider the nation of Israel, when did Israel start receiving revelation from God? Well, with the possible exception of Job, we have revelation being given to Israel starting with Moses. Coming out of Egypt, Moses receives the Word of God and starts writing Genesis 1. Goes all the way through the end of Deuteronomy. Gives them the first five books of what we now call the Bible. Moses received the oracles from God that were to be preserved. And of course, Beyond Moses, there were all kinds of prophets that you know about in the Old Testament. Romans chapter 3 puts it this way. Romans 3 verses 1 and 2. What then has, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? So what, what advantage is there in being Jewish? Paul says, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with what God had said. They were entrusted with special revelation from God. And we'll talk much more about that process in the Old Testament next week. But for the rest of our consideration of revelation this morning, I want us to think about the New Testament. The New Testament. So now fast forward well beyond Moses, go forward 1,400 years or so, and consider what Jesus is doing in the New Testament. Jesus, of course, began to build His church after He initiated the covenant through His blood after he finished his work. And as Christ was building his church, the apostles were foundational to the church. We exist today as the church because of God's work through the apostles. And we see this in several texts. In Matthew 16, 18, this is right after Peter declared Jesus to be the Son of God. Jesus said, Blessed are you, and I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Beyond the statement, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Beyond that statement, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be building my church upon apostolic authority. I'm going to be building my church on the testimony of the apostles. And that's absolutely what happened. As we read through the New Testament, we find out more and more about this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Ephesians 2, 19, Paul writes, So then you, speaking primarily to Gentiles here, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. What is the foundation of the church? The apostles and prophets. This is a building illustration, isn't it? You build on a good foundation. And you only need one good foundation, don't you? And God gave us a good foundation with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. In Hebrews chapter 2, this is Hebrews 2, 3 and 4. The author of Hebrews writes, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, 
and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. There are three generations listed out here. It was at first spoken to us by the Lord. Spoken by the Lord. This great salvation. And it was attested to. What was attested to? The message of the Lord. It was attested to by those who heard Him. And they, with their message, brought signs and wonders. The apostles. Those whom Jesus Christ chose. They were to testify about Him and there were certain gifts that they were given. That's 2 Corinthians 12.12. Paul talks about the signs of an apostle. They had certain signs that accompanied the message and the message spread. And then the author of Hebrews is saying, and then there was us who received the message from them. And Hebrews, you, you get this sense of we are transitioning now from a time of the apostles to a time where we are, this foundation is finished and we're built on this foundation of the apostles. And you get that same sense in Jude 3. Jude is just one chapter. This is verse 3 of Jude. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. We're approaching, as you read through the Bible, you start approaching this sense of finality. Revelation is becoming final. It's being handed down once for all to the saints. And God was using the apostles in a very specific role to lay the foundation for the church. The work of the apostles was foundational, and we are built upon that foundation. We've received the Word of God from those who received the Word from the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not creating anymore. We're not creating new revelation in the church. We've been given, once for all, the final revelation. Ultimately, of course, the expression of Jesus Christ. God in flesh walking among us and His apostles who explained that to us. It's an amazing thing. The apostles were called by Jesus specifically. There were qualifications to be an apostle. You can look in Acts chapter 1 sometime where they replaced Judas. And there were certain qualifications. Men had to have been walking with them since the time of Christ. They had to have seen the risen Christ. And of course, they had to be called specifically by Jesus Christ. But what you find, it's an amazing thing, as you read through the book of Acts, as the other apostles begin to die, they don't get replaced. James, in Acts chapter 12, is killed because of his allegiance to Christ. And James wasn't replaced. As Christ was building His church, the apostles were used, and as they died, that was the end of the apostolic era. The apostolic era didn't continue. It was limited to the first century. And we see this not just in our own interpretation of the Bible, but we see this understanding even in the early church. I want to read to you a very, very old quote. This is from the end of the first century. It's from Clement, Clement of Rome. He died in 99 AD. So it's before that. He said, The apostles received the gospel for us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was sent from God. The Christ, therefore, is from God, and the apostles from the Christ. Both, therefore, came of the will of God and in the appointed order. This is the only verified letter of Clement that we have. And it's most likely written around 96 A.D. He likely knew the Apostle John. He wrote this shortly before his death. And what he articulated just in that short statement is an understanding of Jesus came, appointed apostles, and we received from the apostles. They didn't keep producing more and more apostles. But we received the foundation of this special revelation, the New Testament. Just as when God rescued Israel out of Egypt, and He made a covenant with them on Mount Sinai, and He gave them the law, He gave them a lot of special revelation. So as we enter into covenant with God, as Jesus comes and He initiates the new covenant of His blood, and we are coming into covenant relationship with God, He's given us the New Testament. He's given us another pouring forth of revelation. Special, foundational revelation. It ceased with the apostles. Not that God's activity has ceased. God still guides us. God is still involved. But He's not giving any more special revelation. The good news is that revelation was given 
to them, but not only for them. Praise God that this revelation is just as relevant for us today, 2,000 years removed, and is just as authoritative today, 2,000 years removed. You see, apostolic tradition, what the apostles taught, that's what I mean by apostolic tradition. Don't start thinking, you know, weird guys with big hats and robes and incense and stuff, okay? Apostolic tradition, what the apostles taught, that's the vehicle that God has put the church in. We are being carried along, being directed by the Word of God, the special revelation for us. Now, not all apostolic teaching was written down, especially at first. You'll talk to some people and they'll point out this fact that, well, they weren't writing everything down, and that's true. In fact, it took some time before things began to be written down. This is 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Paul, as he was writing to this church in Thessalonica, said, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So not always were these things written down. But that which was inspired and written down was preserved for us. What is clear, though, is that the apostles had absolute authority over the churches. Peter reminded the church of the apostles' authority. When Peter would preach or when Peter would write his letter, he would remind people of the authority that he had as one of the apostles. In Acts chapter 10, we see Peter preaching. We hear from Peter in one of his sermons. In Acts chapter 10, verse 40, Peter says, God raised him up on the third day, of course, speaking of Jesus, and granted that he become visible. Now catch this. Not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That's a very important statement, isn't it? There were certain witnesses of the resurrection that were chosen beforehand by God who would serve a unique role in the church. The apostles. He clarifies even further, saying that is to us who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. Verse 42, And He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the One who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and of the dead. Not only there, but also in His second letter, His second epistle, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, it says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and, listen to this, the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. They were to hear the authority of Peter as an apostle. They were to receive that letter and conform to it. All people who heard from the apostles were to conform themselves to the message of the apostles. Notice Peter doesn't say, unless some of your own apostles disagree. It wasn't in the apostles' mind that there would be other apostles. They were used of God to lay down this foundation for the church. It has direct bearing on the church. And it still does today because all of these teachings were eventually written down. These things were written in such a way that they were preserved I want to just give you a a short excerpt from Isaiah chapter 30. This is Isaiah 30, verse 8. Look at what God directs the prophet to do. Now go, write it on a tablet before them, and inscribe it on a scroll, that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. So Isaiah was to preserve his prophecy that was given. He was speaking to Jews. He was Uh, pronouncing all sorts of judgment over the neighboring nations. This was in a section where he was speaking specifically of Egypt. And God says, this is to be preserved. Go write it down. This written tradition of the prophets and then eventually the apostles, this was God's way of preserving His foundation for His church. This, of course, despite the world trying to destroy the Bible. There have been many cultures that have tried to get the Bible away from their people. Many leaders trying to get the Bible out of their society. And yet God says, write it down, and future generations will read. And here we are. Isn't that amazing? Again, we'll talk more about that in a later sermon in this series. What's interesting is as these things were being written down in the New Testament, specifically, but also in the Old, it didn't have to be an apostle 
writing down. The, the, the words that were coming off of the pen didn't have to come off an apostle's pen specifically. I talked about apostolic authority pretty strongly there, but I want to clarify that it didn't have to be just apostles who were writing down the words and the teachings of the apostles. When you consider the Gospel of Mark, Mark wasn't an apostle. Luke, not an apostle. James, some people will say James is an apostle. I kind of lean the other direction. Jude, the author of Hebrews. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is. For sure. We have our guesses, but we don't know for sure. In fact, many apostles used scribes. They would dictate to a scribe, and the scribe would be writing down this tradition that was to be preserved for us. But because it went through a scribe, does that make it null and void? No. No, it doesn't. Apostles, of course, had to be involved. They were directing, they were overseeing the process. But they didn't have to be the ones specifically who were writing. Just to give you a couple of examples, take the Gospel of Mark that I just mentioned. It's most likely that the Gospel of Mark is Peter's account of the life of Christ. It's pretty interesting as you consider. There's some evidence for that that we could look at sometime if you get excited about that kind of stuff. But Mark was likely writing down Peter's uh, memory on that and what Peter was dictating to him. You think of the Gospel of Luke. Luke specifically says at the start of the Gospel that he was an investigator. He was doing this for Theophilus. And Luke spent a lot of time with Paul, didn't he? And though Luke wasn't an apostle, he was used of God to write down this teaching, to preserve this teaching for the church. In fact, one of the major theories of the letter to the Hebrews the book of Hebrews as we know it, is that it's one of Paul's sermons that was recorded by Luke. That's interesting, but maybe, maybe not, right? In any case, we know that the apostles were involved. They were directing, they were overseeing the process. In fact, as you get into looking at church history, how did they decide what books were in and what books were out of the Bible? We're going to talk about this next week. But one of those famous books that the History Channel or the Discovery Channel will say, this is the last book of the Bible that should be in the Bible, is the Shepherd of Hermas. Shepherd of Hermas. Why did the early church reject the Shepherd of Hermas? Because it had no connection to the apostles. There was no connection to apostolic authority. That's why it wasn't considered to be Scripture by the early church. Very clearly, a direct connection to an apostle, either writing it, overseeing it, dictating it, was a requirement. It was a criterion in the early church to determine what was Scripture, to recognize what was Scripture, rather. And today, as we recognize God's Word, as we hear the voice of our Lord, when we look into Scripture, our role is to guard this special revelation. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. There are three passages in a row in 2 Timothy that I want us to see together. Starting in 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy 1, verses 13 and 14. Look at what Timothy is called to do as a pastor regarding the Word of God. 2 Timothy 1, starting in verse 13. 2 Timothy 1, 13, it says, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Here's Look at this amazing commission. Verse 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. What was Timothy's role as a pastor? And by extension, the role of the church as gathered Christians. What's our role? To guard this amazing treasure that's been handed down once for all to the saints. The Word of God. The revelation of God. And look down just a couple verses. Chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. How is Timothy to do this? Look what Paul says. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is the, the goal of the church, to guard and treasure the Word of God through faithful men who trust the Word, who teach it accurately, who rely on God and know that the Word is central to the church. Michael Kruger, he wrote this, and he's written two big books on the canon of Scripture that are very helpful. 
In one of his books, he summed it up this way. The New Testament documents can be understood as the written expression of the authoritative, foundational, and eyewitness tradition delivered by the apostles of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means we must guard. We must protect. We must train in and pass on the Word of God. This is God's message to us. Jesus Christ coming, walking among us, appointing apostles who revealed more and more of God to us. This is a great revelation of God that's been granted to us and we guard, protect, and trust in the Scriptures. That's our role as a church. God has spoken. But not only has He spoken, He has spoken precisely. God has spoken with precision. Not only has He revealed, but He has inspired people to write particular words. Not just ideas, but words. You might get in a conversation with somebody about the Bible saying, well, God has revealed Himself. Old and New Testament, 66 books. God has spoken. It's Scripture. And they might say, okay, you believe that. But how? Have you ever heard this? If imperfect men were involved, well, the product had to be imperfect, right? Men, just like the men we know today, walking around, if they were to write something, they are going to mess up the process. How could sinful, fallen, imperfect men give us something that is so trustworthy? Well, I want to finish today by speaking of the process of inspiration. The doctrine of inspiration. Because not only do we believe God has spoken, we believe God has spoken precisely. And that what we have is a reliable, precise revelation from God. First, the method. The method of inspiration was what we call verbal plenary. You don't use those words together like that very often, verbal plenary. What it means is all of the words were inspired. Plenary means all. Verbal, of course, means words. We believe that all words were inspired in the biblical text. We don't believe that God put a little idea in David's ear. And David had this idea, and then it was up to David just to write down whatever he wanted. We don't believe that God moved in some mysterious way that made Zephaniah just inspired the way that we use the term today. Like he just felt like writing poetry or something. And so he sat down and he wrote something and everybody thought it was beautiful, so they kept it. We believe that God inspired Scripture in a verbal plenary sense, meaning all of the words that God desired them to say and write down, they did. No more, no less. What came off of their pen was perfect in God's eyes. What came off of their pen, God could say, just like in creation, very good, very good. God was entirely in control of the process of inspiration. And there are two passages you must know. The first one's still right here in 2 Timothy. Look at chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 16. This is what Logan read for us at the beginning of the service. All Scripture, Paul says, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The word that's found here in verse 16 for inspired is an amazing word. It's kind of a made-up word that Paul made up to make a point. A compound word. If you were reading from an ultra-literal translation... It would say, all Scripture is God-breathed. The word is theonustos, theos, God. Pneuma is the word for breath or spirit. You put those two concepts together, Scripture is God-breathed. You can't be more intimately connected to a product than the product of your own breath. God is so involved with giving this revelation that it says that it's God-breathed. That's amazing. All Scripture, Paul says, God-breathed, entirely purposed and shaped by God. And then the other passage is in 2 Peter. If you go forward in your New Testament, don't hit the book of Revelation, but just before Revelation is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. 2 Peter 1, starting at verse 19. This is an amazing statement from the Apostle. 
He writes, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. He says in verse 19, we have the prophetic word more sure. We have a certain prophetic word from God. We have a sure prophecy from God. Scripture itself. Look at verse 20. Know this first of all. You know when a, writer, when a Bible writer says know this first of all, you better pay attention. Know this first. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. That's the doctrine of inspiration. Men were moved passively by the Holy Spirit. They spoke from God in a passive sense. They weren't active and it wasn't their own interpretation. It wasn't their own will. It wasn't, at the end, their own word, was it? They were moved in a passive sense by the Holy Spirit. Your translation might say, They were carried along. That's a great image, isn't it? They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit did the work in writing Scripture, and God the Spirit gets the credit for Scripture, doesn't He? It's His Word. It's God's Word. Now, I want to clarify this point because at the same time, we don't believe they became robots. We don't believe that if someone was inspired by God, whether you're in the Old Testament or New, we don't believe that their brain just shut off and they were overtaken in such a way that they only wrote with one personality style all throughout Scripture. Scripture was written in three different languages, multiple continents, over 40 different authors when you include uh, contributions to Psalms and Proverbs, dozens of authors, and you can see their personalities in Scripture. You can see their cares and concerns in Scripture. You can see the difference in in language, even as we read it all in English today. God worked through their personalities, not despite or around or over their personalities. I think there's a great correlation here to our salvation. If you've studied the Bible, and if you have a high view of God, you would affirm with me that God is sovereign in salvation, isn't He? God gets all the credit, doesn't He? He is sovereign in salvation. Gets all the credit. However, you also have to affirm that God works through human actions in salvation, doesn't He? God works through human beings, not apart from human beings, in saving human beings. Now, isn't that just astounding? When someone gets born again, right from the beginning, how do they describe it? Well, from their perspective, as it happened, well, I heard this, I heard that, and I chose to believe. And then as someone, that same person, starts reading Scripture, how does that person describe it? God interrupted my life and saved me. (laughs) Despite myself, He saved me. It's both and, isn't it? It's not an either or. And we get in trouble when we start trying to make it a really hard either or. Same with Scripture. Did Paul write 1 Corinthians or did the Holy Spirit write 1 Corinthians? Yes and amen, right? (laughs) Personalities and personal concerns weren't barriers to God in getting His Word to people. I mentioned as we finished 1 Corinthians that those letter endings when you get to the end of Romans or 2 Corinthians or whatever book you may be reading... They have these personal salutations and greetings and all these really personal touches on the letter. And I think that is just an amazing place to look to see how inspiration worked. Paul had in his heart a great desire to send greetings to specific people by name. But God was in control of him giving those greetings. God was in total control. He didn't give one greeting that God didn't want him to give. And he never stopped short of the greetings that God wanted him to give. God was in total control. He worked through Moses' life and David's life and John's life and Paul's life and Peter's life using their personalities, using their language, using their circumstances. Those weren't barriers to God in inspiring Scripture. But God used a very personal means to deliver to us a very personal word, didn't He? And that makes the Bible unlike any other book. 
so unique, so magnificent. And so that was the method. Verbal plenary inspiration. But let me end with speaking to the result. If that was the method, what was the result? The result was an infallible and an inerrant text. The text of Scripture, as it came off the pen, infallible, inerrant. A collection of writings serving as a covenant document for a covenant people. The letters as the apostles and prophets wrote them. They were totally incapable of erring. If this text was God-breathed, if that was the message, God-breathed, are you going to find an error in God's breath? No way. So the result was a text that was incapable of erring because it comes from God, meaning there are no errors in it whatsoever. There's no mistake in any of the texts. And the authors of Scripture had self-awareness of this fact. I think this is pretty astonishing. It's not like the authors of Scripture thought they were just anybody writing any letter and, well, you decide for yourself whether you think it's from God or not. That's not true. They had self-awareness. And I want to show you in a few places in Scripture. You can go ahead and start turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. They had self-awareness of their inspiration and of their infallibility. You think of the quotes I read to you from Peter earlier, back in Acts chapter 10. There were eyewitnesses chosen beforehand by God. Listen to them. In his second epistle to the, to the believers, he says, the Lord's command through your apostles. Take heed. Listen. That was Peter. But you also see this type of thinking in Paul. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 Paul says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, here it is, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Paul says, what we delivered to you, that wasn't our stuff. That's the Word of God. That's amazing self-awareness of inspiration, isn't it? The next book over, 2 Thessalonians. You can just go over to 2 Thessalonians 3, a few pages. 2 Thessalonians 3, starting at verse 14. Paul ends this letter by saying this, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You don't expect conformity and strict obedience to my words, do you? <laughs> I hope you don't. But if I was an inspired apostle writing to you, I had the authority to say that. Paul had the authority to say that. He was inspired. Obey. Conform. And one more. This is 1 Corinthians 14. We just went over this recently. 1 Corinthians 14.37. Paul wrote to that church and says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Very strong language. If anyone does not recognize this, he himself is not recognized. So did the apostles envision a 27-book New Testament as we have it today, Matthew to Revelation? Well, no. I mean, Paul, who died fairly early on, comparatively, did he know about John's writings that would come a few decades later? No, he, we have no evidence that says that he does, or that he did. But what was certain is that they knew that they were speaking with God's authority as they wrote to God's church. They knew they had full authority over the churches by way of inspiration. The Spirit carrying them along gave them the authority to write in such a way to the churches. And over the course of time, God's church recognized all these inspired documents collected them, and of course they've been preserved for us today. And again, we'll talk more about that next week. But consider the result of inspiration. This is where we'll finish today. Consider the result of inspiration. You have a text with divine qualities and a divine purpose. You can't say this about any other book. The result of inspiration is a text with divine qualities and a divine purpose. The Bible demonstrates God's power 
God's beauty. Perfect harmony. The Bible discerns the thoughts and the intentions of man's heart. That's pretty divine if you ask me. No other book can do what the Bible does. This book with divine qualities, with a divine purpose, has been set in front of us. It's been set in front of us as something that we're responsible to obey. The onus is on us to hear, to believe, to respond. If we go all the way back to Deuteronomy 18, you don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 18, Moses was given this prophecy. This is God speaking through Moses. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen, Israel, like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That's pretty heavy responsibility, isn't it? This is a prophecy about Jesus. There's one who's going to be raised up in Israel, the coming prophet. Listen to his words. This revelation that's coming. You are to listen and to believe. And those who don't, God will require it of them. We get to the New Testament and and we see this prophet, Jesus, walking the earth. And we hear from his apostles. And the start of Hebrews just outlines this, describes this perfectly. Hebrews 1.1. An amazing statement. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, what now? In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, through whom he appointed heir of all things, or whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Jesus has been revealed as Lord. What will you do with him in his word? You better not say more evidence. Submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Bow the knee to the Word of God that has full authority over you, that's been revealed from God Himself, inspired by God Himself. Scripture is divine. There's purpose built in. (laughs) And God will accomplish His purposes. He absolutely will accomplish His purposes. This is is foundational to our recognition of the canon itself. Next week we'll talk about canon. But how do we know what is canon? How do we know what's inspired, what is not? Well, there are divine purposes built in to what has been inspired, and God always accomplishes His purposes. I'll finish with Isaiah 55. You guys know this text, I'm sure. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread, to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. You think God's in control of this? Yeah, you better believe it. What He has spoken, He will preserve. The purposes that He has for His word, He will accomplish. Job, in response to God, he says, the Lord has a plan and no man can thwart it. That includes God's Word, doesn't it? He has spoken, He has spoken with precision, and He will accomplish His purposes. Let's pray. Lord, You are an all-powerful God. You are majestic and holy and wise. We thank You for condescending to speak to us that You would use words we can understand, that You would deliver to us a personal communication that is not owed to us, that You would speak and preserve and deliver once for all salvation for Your saints. We thank You for the work You're doing in building Your church, and we ask together that this church would never lose sight of the prominence of Your Word. 
but that we would see all ministry having to go through your revelation, to be driven by your revelation, to be empowered by your revelation. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.